Good afternoon. Hopefully you guys have had a good conference. Um, I wish I could have been here for more of it. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. I kind of talk loud anyway, so I'll just uh, kind of be uh, louder than usual. Uh, so, yeah, uh, go Cats, first first of all. <laughs> go Cats. Uh, U of Emmers, I know you're holding out. Go <clears throat> Holding out for Go Grizz. But I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, I sit on the board of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, and so I'm here to represent that organization, although I wear several hats uh, that were mentioned, uh, the Wind River Tribal Buffalo Initiative, um, the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, I, I oversee the Buffalo program for the Eastern Shoshone Tribe there at Wind River, and work closely with the Arapaho Tribe, and uh, I'm on the board of directors for the Conservation Lands Foundation as well. So. I try to uh, spread myself as thin as I can so that I'm not able to uh, uh, accomplish much. <laughs> anyway, uh, glad to be here for, for on behalf of ITBC, which is uh, really an organization that was formed uh, 30 years ago. And we've been working with tribes uh, across the country for, for that long, and we've restored over 20,000 buffalo uh, to tribes. And so that has been a very good success success story that the organization is headquartered in Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, I'm, I'm personally from Wyoming and make trips to uh, South Dakota for various, uh, various things and projects that we've got going on through ITBC to help our member tribes, whether it's education, uh, infrastructure for many of our other, other tribes. Uh, 32 million acres of land, uh, of tribal land, is uh, now being used and utilized for buffalo and bison restoration. I use buffalo and bison interchangeably. Uh, every, you know, that's always one of the first questions that, that is asked, is why do you say buffalo? Well, you know, bison, bison is obviously the scientific name and we know that. But in our tribal communities, buffalo is a, is a more accepted term. Of course, there's 330 languages indigenous to this continent. We all had our own terms for, for, the, lang uh, for the buffalo. But the French, uh, often allied with, with many tribal members, tribes in the past, uh, buffalo became uh, the term that stuck. Many of those uh, families have buffalo in their names, and so we're not going to change our names just because scientists tell us bison is the correct term. <laughs> Uh, so we provide many services to uh, our member tribes, uh, herd development grants, so tribes can apply for funding from ITBC to assist in infrastructure uh, for education, uh, technical assistance, uh, management, marketing if that's what the tribes want. Uh, you know, it's very important uh, as a health initiative in getting buffalo meat back into our diet. Uh, Buffalo is the highest in protein, minerals, and vitamins, and lowest in fat and cholesterol than any other meat. And a lot of our tribal members have a high prevalence of diabetes and heart disease and other health-related issues that's directly attributable to the removal of buffalo from our diet over a hundred years ago. And so getting it into our diet today is, is a very healthy uh, way of restoring our cultural connection. Um, and, but also the nutritional importance of, of buffalo to our diets. 
So we also partner with uh, public lands and work to increase the conservation around buffalo, uh, bison, around Yellowstone. The, the ITBC is a member of the Interagency Bison Management Plan. So we partner to protect the species, the cultural connections, and work closely with partners to ensure we can get more live buffalo out of Yellowstone. Some of our partners include the, the Park Service, these federal agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service. The National Bison Association is actually an organization of producers, the Wildlife Conservation Society, defenders, many others, uh, including universities, tribal colleges, community colleges across uh, our states that have a close proximity to our tribal communities. So we've been able to successfully fund tribal programs at about a million and a half dollars for the last 30 years. And uh, with an increase in membership, it's very important that we continue to find funding to support our tribal buffalo programs. And current funding only covers 5% of the annual needs of our 76 member tribes. So we've been really working uh, on some legislation uh, called the Indian Buffalo Management Act. We had some successful decisions that were made. We were able to get uh, Don Young to introduce the bill and it was supported by Deb Holland at the time and Tom Cole. We got it through the the House side but it's stalled in the uh, in the Senate currently. And so uh, we are still seeking some support. We're, we're continuing to go to DC to be advocating for uh, federal dollars. We feel that the Indian Buffalo Management Act is uh, should be supported federally as, as trust responsibility. So we know the Bolt decision that happened in the Northwest for salmon and the co-management of the tribes for that resource. We feel that that type of a similar uh, federal obligation should be for the Buffalo tribes. There's a hundred forty million dollars uh, appropriated uh, annually to the Northwest Fish Commissions to co-manage uh, salmon. Uh, that language has some uh, bearing on the buffalo uh, and the buffalo tribes. You know, the buffalo was nearly exterminated, but the salmon uh, was never, you know, on the brink of extinction. And so that trust responsibility of the federal government to help us uh, get those buffalo back uh, for their conservation of the genetics, for their ecosystem engineer role on the landscape, uh, and for biodiversity. So ITBC kind of focuses on, uh, on community, on several areas, community sustenance, providing an adequate food source for our tribal communities, disease prevention and treatment. I mentioned the uh, the diabetes and heart disease and other health related issues. Buffalo back into our diet is a mechanism to uh, decrease those statistics. Disease as it pertains to buffalo is also an issue as many of you are probably familiar with the quarantine program at Yellowstone. Um, we also want to assist in ensuring we can get more live buffalo out of the park. So what does that mean? Expansion of the quarantine? Uh, there's been some you know, assistance to do that, but really the, the opportunity for tribes to have a bigger role in bison conservation is, uh, is increasing. Um, 
to address those needs. Again, the healthy alternative, you know, relearning and getting this animal back into our diet uh, includes really the cultural reconnection of our youth and community to the animal. You know, that, that hoof used to be how we made our glue. We made our tools from the bones, sleds from the ribs, uh, sinew, you know, was used for many items. You know, tanning the hide took two brains of a buffalo. Carving the horn spoon, uh, which was an inanimate object in our languages, meaning that it's a, li a living object. The, the skull. All of those ways that we use that buffalo are very important to engage with in our, in our communities. We don't want to just harvest that buffalo and send it off to the, the, the meat processor and you get a box of meat back. That's totally disconnected from the way we want to uh, relate to our food to this animal. The way that we relate to our other foods when we hunt for elk and deer, moose, bighorn sheep, pronghorn antelope, mule deer, white-tailed deer, those foods are very important. That also translates into how they're managed. The importance of that culture and tradition and also language preservation. I mentioned those 330 languages across the country. Most of those are, are dying or, or are extinct already. There's very few tribes that have been able to hold on to their languages, and that is a result of colonization, the boarding school era, this intergenerational trauma. Uh, it's very hard to look in the mirror and not be able to speak your language and realize that that's a result of policies that were affected, you know, that were aimed at your grandmas and grandpas. So, how do we restore that culture and tradition? Well, it's got to have a foundation in Buffalo because Buffalo is who we are. It's in our DNA. It was our food, our clothing, our shelter. It was central to our spiritual belief systems. So, how do we hold on to that and ensure that our young people are proud and can carry that on? This connection that we can have again to these animals means that we can also restore some land. Uh, you know, many of our lands were, were illegitimately acquired through bad legislation like the Homestead Act over a hundred years ago that opened up reservations for homesteading and privatized them made us trespassers on our own homelands. How do we change that? You know, our, our economy was based in the biodiversity of plants and animals before colonization. We moved cyclically, we moved seasonally, and we moved by elevation based upon this interconnectedness and interrelatedness of these species, which were our foods. We would go high elevation in the, in the summer months, we would go lower elevation in the winter months, and those various foods that we would acquire, that was our economy. Our economy was based in the biodiversity of plants and animals. It wasn't economic, based in money that was brought with colonization. We still have 70% unemployment on our reservation today. That would be unheard of on a national level. So how do we balance what is an economic uh, importance to our tribal communities but can be balanced with some of the, the economics of the dominant society? We've, we have to focus on this education, making sure that our young people know all of this stuff. Uh, and so that is a very big component of the Intertribal Buffalo Council so that we can restore our foodways. And these uh, foodways uh, 
are happening across Indian country. It's really interesting if you if you dig up social media and you think about Buffalo, you can go to up Blackfeet and what they're doing with the Eni Initiative, uh, the Wolakota program on the Rosebud over in South Dakota, our our effort at Wind River with the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes. Uh, there's 76 other buffalo programs, and that's not all, that are happening across Indian country, what we say. Uh, all working to restore this animal to our communities um, on a, in a different way. You know, there's, there's a broad spectrum of management and what these tribes can do. Many have a limited land base, and so they can't manage them uh, uh, as say, like a, for instance, like a wildlife species. They can't really protect them as a wildlife species. Some tribes are just trying to get the buffalo meat back into their diet. Some tribes just put the buffalo meat into their school lunch programs because they know how important that buffalo meat is to the kids. Some tribes have the larger land base and have the potential for doing something even beyond what we, we would consider. States like Montana consider now buffalo as livestock, and so that puts buffalo under the auspices of the livestock industry, the stock growers, the farm bureau, these uh, livestock agencies. If we protected buffalo uh, as wildlife, then that would put them under the auspices of the biologists and the ecologists. That's what we're attempting to do at Wind River, is to challenge the status quo, which has been manage all our lands for cattle grazing. Bureau of Indian Affairs is our land managing agency at Wind River, so we have to challenge BIA to say, we don't really want to do it that way anymore. We want to have a more holistic, ecological approach where we can think about buffalo for its keystone role on the landscape, but also for the cultural connection. At Wind River in the 80s, we re restored a pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep, they were extirpated prior to 84. But we implemented a game code, tribal law, that protected those species, and now we have an abundance of game. And that is for sustenance. Many of our tribal members still hunt, we still fish, we still gather our traditional ancestral foods. Buffalo has been missing for a very long time, but it's now restored and so we're working to, to reintegrate that but protect buffalo under tribal laws wildlife so that way we are changing land use priority from cows to buffalo which is a keystone species that's plant and animal biodiversity and so there's a whole lot of potential I think for buffalo programs uh, buffalo restoration across not only Indian country and what what happens on tribal lands but what happened to Buffalo is an American story. It's not very often shared or taught in our schools, though, that history. So, you know, we need to help others understand, and that's why it's uh, really nice to be here and share with you all some of the work that, that ITBC is doing, some of the work that uh, is happening independently, uh, uh, for instance, at Wind River and other places. So I'm happy to answer any questions. I don't know if the other speaker sh has arrived, no? Well, I've got a whole bunch of pretty photos I could show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Open for questions. Yes, sir. Is there any attempt being made, as is being done in Africa for the safaris, for the tribes, 
the law hunters to take uh, a trophy, if you will, and then the meat goes to the tribe. The uh, they're making a lot of money that way. Yeah, that's an that's an economic paradigm. Yeah. And uh, what I'm trying to bring is an ecological paradigm, where yes. where where we can feed our people first, and then think about maybe the potential for marketing at, at a later point. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I got to witness pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep being reintroduced to the reservation. My dad was a biologist; he worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. So I was a kid, and he told me that when I saw those pronghorn antelope get off the trailer, he told me I'd be able to hunt one in 10 years. And they did so well, I was able to kill my first one eight years later, and I've harvested one every year since to feed my family, to, to feed myself. Not, not, to, not to sell or to gain money. And so we have to think about that in terms of the buffalo, because there's 500,000 buffalo already in the commercial meat market. There's less than 25,000 that are managed as wildlife or managed as con that are conservation animals with Yellowstone genetics and lineage. Even less so, the number of animals that are considered wildlife for their ecological keystone role on the landscape. That keystone ecological role of buffalo on the landscape should supersede what we're going to get economically from marketing the meat. So for the for the buffalo to be considered uh, wildlife, uh, an act of Congress does that take a uh, something within the federal government? What is it? What is that? What has to happen? Well, for tribes, all we have to do is exercise sovereignty, because we have uh, the self determination that would restore this animal to tribal lands. Now, what happens on public land, that's a whole other animal. Because that, but, but, but I think, you know, uh, we can help set precedent on tribal lands for what's possible on public lands, and that's where we're gonna get the buy-in and support. So, you know, you all can come to Wind River and see what we're doing with Buffalo there, and the idea and the concept, conceptual change to this paradigm shift of, of moving from a priority in cattle. First of all, why is cattle prioritized on an Indian reservation? We have to question that. And so undo some of that to reprioritize the way they should be used with the, that's more, that's more holistic and beneficial to our tribal communities. That land use change uh, is, a, is a paradigm shift that I think can be applied to public lands, but it's gonna take a whole lot of public input and support in Wyoming, in Montana, you know, this this administration in Montana undid decades of work to protect buffalo and sovereignty and tribes. Hope, hopefully that helped. I'm sorry. Well, if we have time, you for the other questions. I'd like you to speak more to politics and what's going to happen to you. Okay, what what really is helpful right now is a secretarial order from. Uh, Deb Holland, Secretarial Order 3403, signed by Vilsack and Holland for land consolidation and purchase of private inholdings for uh, subsistence, cultural use, and treaty reserve rights. So that's exactly what is happening at Wind River with land acquisition of fee land 
that will go into a conservation easement and ultimately into the land into trust process to add those lands back to tribes. That's reversing the trend uh, of the, the continued diminishment of jurisdiction of our tribal lands, which is why you know we have the checkerboard effect and then all these rules and regulations and things that continue to open up things. Uh, maybe we can visit a little bit more after. Yes? Are, you had mentioned uh, Lynn River invited people to come down and see it. Are you offering at some time in the future come and understand? Is that something that Yeah, I think that this, because it's, uh, you know, the Wind River Tribal Buffalo Initiative that, uh, that I had uh, is an organization, a nonprofit that was put up, started there to help reconnect youth and community to Buffalo and then also reacquire land. Uh, to reacquire land, that takes millions of dollars now, even though they were sold for pennies per acre. Uh, so the more uh, help that we can, dollars we can raise for land acquisition, the better. So that takes bringing people there to help understand and see for themselves what, what land use changes or what a paradigm shift can be. So the windriverbuffalo.org website will have access to um, signing up and coming down for a visit. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, you showed a map of most of the western states with locations where buffalo were being managed. I was surprised that it was that extensive. And particularly, uh, there were three locations in California, one near where I live, and I have no knowledge of that. The there is various uh, like the northern northern herd. There was the Pit River tribe in Northern California. I think the Oakland Zoo has conservation animals uh, that had a partnership with the Blackfeet. That's why the one there. And uh, are you at all knowledgeable about the one on the north coast, right on the coast? I am not. I could look into it. I'll give you a ref of, of my contact information okay. afterwards. Yeah, I'll give you mine too. Thank you. Yeah? So, um, I find it really wonderful about the reintroduction of the buffalo into the school food programs and uh, into the diet. And you talked a lot about the cultural implications as well. Beyond the meat, has there been anything done with the, with the rest of the buffalo that they um, have the high school students? Create a buffalo hide teepee. Has there been any other uses of? Um, that's that's she. That's a great point. The St. Stephen's School worked closely with a private producer to get hides that they recreated this this lodge, and so they took I think ten or twelve students from St. Stephen's High School back to Washington D.C. to the Smithsonian, where they have a replica or they have a an Arapaho teepee. And so the students got to see it and study it and learn how it was sewn together and then came back and recreated one. It takes 17 hides to make one lodge. And so they, they did, uh, that's a perfect example of a type of activity we want to continue to promote and, and do. Uh, we haven't killed 17 buffalo yet, so we we're still trying to grow the population. When I'd mentioned the horn spoon, that's an interesting, um, uh, activity because in in both la in both languages that's a very important item in the Arapaho language that's an animate item it's called habiya 
and um, what she's showing you is Tessie Heavey. And the horn spoon uh, was something that everybody would have carried with them at one time. You know, they all had their, everybody had their own utensil, and that was a horn spoon. Uh, before pots and pans and iron and cell phone and all that. <laughs> so, reconnecting in that way with the buffalo horn spoon is, is one activity, but tanning the hide, making the rib sled. Uh, you know, usually when we're done with the buffalo, all that's left is, uh, is the grass from his belly. Using all of the organs and entrails, uh, the entire entire animal to sh to show uh, youth and community members how we how we do that, so that when those buffalo are restored or protected as wildlife, and we can go out and hunt them, that that connection is there with the little ones, and uh, I think there's actually even an update to this map. Uh, this is an old map from two years ago. You see those uh, the little dot there in Alaska. Uh, we flew uh, last year f three bulls from Yellowstone to the Sitkalitic Island for the Aleutic tribe. We called it Operation Buffalo Wings. <laughs> <laughs> they, so they went from um, Fort Peck Reservation to Blackfeet where they had a container cut into pieces and sealed up so the three of them could ride in there. Then they rode on a, on, a, on a semi over to the coast in Seattle, and then they flew by FedEx to Anchorage. <laughs> and then we uh, brought them on a barge down to Sitkalitic Island. So that, that's a pretty good story that highlights uh, the importance of getting Yellowstone genetics out to our member tribes to improve the heterogeneity of our, our populations. Those Yellowstone animals are so important to uh, getting out alive. And right now, after cattle, you know, brought brought brucellosis, infected the the buffalo and the elk, you know, 60% of those buffalo are going to test positive for antibodies or for brucellosis. They're going to die. That means that we can only successfully get out at least 40%. So we got to make sure that we're maximizing that 40% to the best of our ability to conserve those genetics, get them into tribes, and improve the heterogeneity of, of our conservation populations, none of which are at a thousand animal threshold needed for heterogeneity of that, of that population. You know, we've, got, we've got plenty of buffalo in the commercial meat market already. We've got to put some emphasis now on conservation of the species and the genetics. And that paradigm shift to restore them as wildlife for their ecological keystone role. If they increase plant and animal biodiversity, why isn't that reason enough to bring them back on the landscape? Let alone the cultural part. Yes. So I don't have a question, I just have a comment. Um, on the success of your program, I live right next door to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. And just two weeks ago, I was driving home from Billings and came up over a hill and their herd had come up next to the road and they were wallowing in Prairie Dog Town. Yeah. And it was so wonderful to see. My wife and I were just driving through uh, Northern Cheyenne a couple of weeks ago and we, they were by the road and we stopped them and saw them too. And was, that was great because you don't always see them driving on 212 through there. No, they usually stay down. Yeah. Families. Yeah, that's great. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question. On, within a reservation, it seems like uh, there's there's uh, tribal lands, and then there's 
lands that at one time or another were designated to a, uh, a particular family uh, within the tribe. So, um, is, how are those, I guess the question is kind of, how are those initial lands divided up uh, among members of the tribe? How is that affecting your efforts to try to get, uh, you know, herds established within within the uh, the, the ground, the, the perimeter of the of the whole reservation? That that brings up an interesting point, a very important one about the historical context of land loss. And I don't know if you can see this map very well. I don't know if this light will go off, but. Oh. This is the original 1863 treaty for the Shoshone tribe. This is uh, superimposed on a on a, a modern map showing the. Uh, so this is the Wyoming boundary, right here. This is Idaho, Utah, Colorado. 1863. This is the Shoshone reservation. It was 44 million acres. Five years later, it was reduced to that. That was between 1863 and 1868. That's the 1868 treaty. Now, zooming in, this right here is South Pass to Lander. This is called the Bruno Session. Shoshone tribe got 25,000 for that. Now, we look at the northeast corner of the reservation around Thermopolis. That was supposed to be one mile by one mile, but McLaughlin added zeros and made it 10 miles by 10 miles just so we could get a little more. 1906, all lands north of the Big Wind River were ceded to homesteading. That area there was opened up for homesteading. That's a Riverton Reclamation Project, not considered part of the reservation. So agriculture was being promoted. Thousands of sheep and cattle were brought in. They were cutting down all kinds of timber and floating them down the Wind River for tie hacks. And then the Bureau of Indian Affairs came in and divided our reservation into 92 grazing units. This is the 92 grazing units. Uh, fortunately, in 1938, some of the unoccupied lands were returned to the reservation, except the Riverton Reclamation Project. So this part is not considered part of the reservation, even though as much as we wanted to. The state of Wyoming says no. At the same time, in 1938, the tribes recognized that they were losing a tremendous amount of land and they wanted to do something to protect it, even though it was a very foreign notion, they, they uh, established a wilderness area. So this area right here is 140,000 acres, has over 200 lakes and several hundred miles of rivers and streams, and is only accessible by foot or horseback. A lot of the language that's in the Wilderness Act came from the designation of this wilderness area even though it's not considered a, a wilderness, it's considered class two airshed. This happened 26 years before the Federal Wilderness Act. So then, uh, so we've been able to restore some, some land for Buffalo. This is where we started. Shoshone tribe bought this land back in the 80s. We designated it for Buffalo. We've got uh, another 300 acres, another 200 acres. We just purchased this for 2.5 million. And we're trying to purchase this for 1.3 million. So that's what we have for Shoshone Tribes Buffalo, but we have to buy the land back. 
Just south of the river, the Arapaho tribe has 56 buffalo right here, and they bought this back as well. Now, these lands along the river were privatized. You know, that's why we're trespassers on our own lands. But buying them back opens them back up to tribal jurisdiction and sovereignty and self-determination. And then these larger land pieces, these are those 92 grazing units that I was telling you about. So if we change the priority of on those range units to from cattle to buffalo, then this is a 70,000 acre area right here. Of course, we've got to work with the existing permittees because those are tribal members. But we have ability to provide them financial incentive to help them retire. Maybe if they want to continue in the cattle business, we find them a different range unit. So it's not a run everybody out kind of thing. We want to make it a win-win. So this 17,000 acre range unit right here, I think we have. We're getting ready to fence that. And it's contiguous to both tribes. So once we got them protected as, as wildlife under tribal law, then we can begin restoring them to a larger land base protected as wildlife. Then we can begin looking at those other 92 grazing units. But if you look at the existing wildlife habitat, like in the Wind Rivers, where we remember have that wilderness area, we've got radio telemetry, data for elk and deer, bighorn sheep, moose, grizzly bears, wolves, how important this is as, a, as their habitat, and part of the GYE. A lot of people don't think of Wind River as being part of the GYE, but we are. Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. So again, we have to challenge that land use. Because Bureau of Indian Affairs is the land managing agency, then we've got to challenge that status quo and reprioritize how things get done. So along that same question there, so was the land within the reservation allocated to specific families? How did that? Yeah. I, the, the, sort of the General Allotment Act, or the Homestead Act, or the Dawes Act, all three synonymous, uh, opened up reservations for homesteading. Basically, the federal government didn't like how there was communal land ownership. And in order to break up communal land, land ownership, they created this policy where they gave every, they allocated each head of household 160 acres. And so that head of household, took his family there and then they were you know, encouraged to farm and ranch. And after they came back 20 years later to claim title to that land, uh, the, that commissioner said, well, did you use it efficiently? Meaning that they farmed and ranched it, they got title. If not, it was advertised and sold for pennies per acre. That opened up the reservation to non-native people and those that wanted to come and farm and ranch. So this was the BIA that did that? It was before BIA. BIA wasn't an entity at that time. This was in the, this would have been 18, 1878. And then Riverton itself, uh, that, that uh, community that's right here, Riverton, that, that was established in 1906. All these lands out here became agricultural and even today uh, they don't consider that part of the reservation. Those families are individuals that owned parcels eventually. Being that it's on a reservation, they don't have to pay property tax, do they? 
if it's if it's tribal allotted, not tribal fee. If it's tribal fee, you do. And then when those 160 acres, say a tribal member kept their 160 acres, and they farmed and ranched it, and they were able to pass it on to their kids and down to their kids and down to their kids, that created airship fractionization. So there can be a 40-acre parcel with 600 heirs on it. So what does that do for uh, collateral or trying to build a house? Or You have to get approval from all of those heirs before you can dig a well. And so the Colbell settlement was put in, you know, won by Eloise Colbell. That money is allocated to tribes to land buyback for airship fractionization. That's not to purchase fee lands. So what we're trying, what we're doing is creating a mechanism which is land rematriation with buffalo restoration, which is reconciliation. So help us buy this land back for buffalo that can be repatriated back to the tribes. And I mentioned the game code. This is what it did for wildlife. This is 2013 data. It's even higher now for elk, deer, and pronghorn. And then in the 90s, we protected wolves and bears. That's a different paradigm. And that's how traditional ecological knowledge comes into modern management. Um, this question isn't specifically about buffalo, but your history and culture. You mentioned, going back to the comment about the um, taking 17 hides to create a, a teepee covering. That had to be horribly heavy to move around. And I've all, always wondered how long a watch pole lasted being drug on the ground for many miles. Um, the lodge poles for the, the teepees would have likely been left at camp so they could just carry the, the, the lodge cover itself from camp to camp and have another set. A uh, set of teepee poles will last about four to five years if, if stored right. And then you got a new, new set. Uh, How did they move the covering then? With, uh, well, the, before the horse, the lodges were much smaller and they would have been carried by dogs. Travoy. Big dogs. <laughs> now let's get someone in the back first. I have a question about how the word sovereignty to the natives applies today. And here the local authorities say we have no control there. We assist. Quasi sovereign. Because if once you, you know, those, those agreements that were made by treaty. Those, those establish some federal, federal precedent. And when a, when a tribe accepts assistance from the federal government, like BIA, or Bureau of Indian Affairs, or Indian Health Service, IHS, then you're, you're, you're kind of undermining yourself by accepting that assistance. You know, if you were exercising sovereignty to its fullest, you wouldn't accept anything from the federal government you would have the ability to have your own health care, your own law enforcement, your own departments, your own income. You know, you would you would facilitate all of that, and that's where, you know, a a, a more intact kind of uh, idea of sovereignty exists. Most tribes have accepted federal assistance, undermining our own sovereignty. And when we accept state assistance, we undermine that even further. And so tribes are hesitant to uh, negotiate with states because it undermines that federal trust responsibility. And so tribes are, are exercise sovereignty in a way 
if 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 they can, where they don't don't undermine that that relationship. The federal government has trust responsibility that they've very that they haven't lived up to for, in very many cases, and the Supreme Court has made decisions that doesn't oftentimes align and support sovereignty. So it makes it very difficult for uh, tribes to continue to do that in a way that's beneficial really to our community. So whether it's the drugs or whether it's transportation or wildlife or uh, what have you, I mean, the, the tribes have a tremendous amount of on their plate and, and a continued encroachment on jurisdiction and, and authority because people don't understand what sovereignty is and what that means. Uh, how about you, sir? So, uh, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and other billionaires have promised to give half of their personal wealth during their lifetime. Have any of them shown any of their futures? Your administration? Uh, they're in, in my role with the National Wildlife Federation, uh, as the largest member-based conservation organization, we are able to tap into some, some pretty big funding sources. NWF is implementing a national tribal enhancement strategy so we can better work with tribes on a national level, supporting sovereignty and self-determination. What's happening at Wind River is a showcase for, for that. Uh, we've met with Bezos and, and other big funders most of philanthropy is shifting to indigenous-led conservation. They don't want to give money to these big organizations. They're going to take 20% off the top and trickle it down into this program on a reservation. Those that are recognizing that tribes have that sovereign authority, that self-determination, is often to protect food. It's often to protect water. It's often to protect land and migration corridors and the holistic nature of our lands. Um, so I think indigenous-led conservation can really uh, be ramped up, and I, I see that happening a bit more on the national level, not specifically from Gates, but other, other big uh, potential funders. And I think that in the next two years, we're going to see that shift even more. But indigenous-led conservation brings that traditional ecological knowledge that many tribes can help with in uh, ensuring we leave this place better than we found it. How about you in the very back? Um, you talked a lot about um, Buffalo as a keystone, ecological brands who don't really know what that means. Could you expand on that idea a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> Some, my wife tells me I get too technical sometimes and I have to not do that. Keystone species means uh, that they uh, that it's a species that benefits many other organisms. Uh, so uh, the keystone role of bison is in their their physiological adaptations and behavior. They they wallow. When they go out and they wallow, that's very important for seed dispersal. It's also very important for water accumulation. So when it rains and snows, that water you know sits in those pools and then. It, accumulates into the ground that's very important for water holding capacity, uh, nutrient cycling. A buffalo has seven times the hair per square inch as a cow and they put on a new coat every winter and in the spring they lose it. That becomes very important for many birds. Again, why plant and animal biodiversity increases with bison. 
many birds need that buffalo hair for their eggs to reach the right incubation temperature. Uh, mountain, mountain plover, ferruginous hawk, burrowing owl, cowbird, sage grouse, all increase in, pre in abundance with, with bison. They have twice the surface area on their teeth as a cow, so they can digest less woodier, less desirable species than cows. They don't congregate in riparian areas. They rotationally graze on their own. You don't have to push them from pasture to pasture. They, they can move three miles a day on their own. Uh, when they walk, their hooves naturally aerate the dirt in the soil, which catches seeds uh, in the wind. A cow has very flat hooves and doesn't do the same. Uh, bison are gram graminoid feeders, so they uh, primarily eat the grasses and leave the forbs where you get your plant biodiversity. They're top grazers, and so they'll graze part of the plant and move on to a new plant. So the plants that they graze on will stay fairly high as opposed to a cow, which will graze it all the way to the bottom, opens up the sunlight, and dries out the dirt. So there's a that's just a few coming coming off the top of my head why why they're keystone species. They, in the literature, they are important for butterflies, lepidopterans, salamanders, reptiles, uh, mammals like uh, prairie dogs and uh, black-footed ferrets and badgers. Uh, they they're just a better animal. <laughs> Two-part question: the the Alouise Cabell settlement. How was that allocated amongst the many different tribes? And then, who administers that? Is that administered by each tribal council? Uh, I'm sure it wasn't uh, by the BIA because they've been part of the problem for so many years. I'm, I'm less familiar with the Colbell settlement and how that was allocated, but from what I understand that, that tribal governments have departments uh, like land resource committees. So our reservation, both tribes, leadership composes the, the land resource committee, and so when these issues come about, then they, they make the decisions on how to allocate the funding for that buyback. But that could be... It could be site-specific to each reservation based on their own programming and their own sovereign, uh, where they are in their sovereignty and exorcism of that. Quite a bit of funds are, are allocated towards buyback of privately owned. You know, I think the, the settlement was uh, $8 billion, which was probably, you know, maybe 20% of what it should have been. That Because it was... The, the, Eloise Colbell sued the federal government for the mismanagement of individual Indian monies. And so the, the mi millions of, of people that were affected by that uh, is, is the entire nation. You know, we could look at a map and see how the lands were diminished millions and millions of acres over time. That should be translated, you know, a little bit more than $8 billion. So. That was the decision. I know that eight billion was divvied up to the tribes in some way, but you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I just know that it goes to airship fractionization and not buyback of, of fee lands or other lands that were acquired by general allotment. Thank you. Yeah. How about you? Um, a few years ago, my friend and I were in Yellowstone in the fall, and we happened to 
you get to see a bison migration. And it was, we spent about two hours watching them. We were out by Slough Creek and, and that was, I mean, was just such an exciting thing. We, we had to stop watching it because we had a dinner reservation in Gardner. <laughs> but, I mean, that's been the highlight of our trips to Yellowstone. Well, uh, you know, we, we, we have to go to parks and refuges and private ranches to see buffalo. Yeah. They don't exist as a wildlife species on our public or many of our other lands. And so that's part of this effort, is that we should be able to go places other than Yellowstone to be able to see these animals for, not just for us to look at, but for them to do their job. Well, we did go to Alaska and we got to see the wood bison. Oh, yeah. And that was exciting to see them laying on the pavement after a little bit of a rainstorm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I made that drive up there once myself, too. That was fun. Yeah. How about you back there? Uh, my question relates directly to that. I'm curious about uh, the American Prairie Reserve yeah, buying up all things in Montana to establish a herd there. Uh, number one, does the uh, Intertribal Council have a relationship with that entity? And number two, are they even paying attention to the uh, uh, purity of the species like the tribes are? Uh, American Prairie. Uh, it's interesting, I just had a gentleman come out to, to Wind River uh, last week and uh, we talked a bit about that. He gave me a fact sheet on, on American Prairie and, uh, you know, their effort to kind of rewild some places. They only have about 800 buffalo in American Prairie. You'd think it would be a lot more by the public opposition that we hear because there's also 20,000 cows there. 20,000 cows, 800 buffalo, but the cattle producers are still complaining that the American Prairie is winning grazing permits uh, for buffalo. They've also opened up all those lands that they've acquired to public access again. When they're privatized, the public had no access to those lands. So I, I applaud uh, American Prairie for what they're doing. I believe that they are uh, focused on the conservation genetics from, from what, I've, what I've come to understand. They're doing some pretty good research there, uh, but they have not involved the tribes. And so that is, uh, and, you know, I think there will come a time, but, you know, Intertribal inter Buffalo Council, we're, trying, we're still trying to get buffalo back into our own communities, back into our own diet, reprioritize some of the things that we have control of right now. And, and that tribal involvement on public land issues could create more contention than there, than there already is. And so ITBC, we're staying a little bit um, in, you know, in the background on, a on uh, American Prairie, as well as uh, CMR. Because of those public lands, it really needs to come from the public and the public support, I think, for those. What we can do on tribal lands is, is what we can do. Everybody can learn from that, and I think draw from those experiences so that we can do more and do better on uh, on some of our other landscapes. But we really need more, you know, people like yourselves uh, voicing that opinion to your legislators, uh, telling your your elected leaders that this is what what we want to see happen. And you know, in the previous uh, uh, 
surveys and things, there was overwhelming support by Montana citizens for tribal buffalo restoration, but that, again, is not reflected by this administration. So, you know, continuing to speak up and, and uh, ensuring that our leadership is carrying the right message forward is very important. How about going in the very back? So uh, Irvin Carlson, who was supposed to be here today, and I filled in for him, is a member of the Blackfeet Tribe, and he manages uh, the buffalo there for Blackfeet Tribe and works closely with the ENE Initiative. So there's a couple herds there at Blackfeet, and um, you know, being from Wyoming, I'm, I'm, I've only get to go up to Blackfeet occasionally, so uh, I think there's also a couple private producers there at Blackfeet. So it'd be hard to, to say for sure which, which ones they would be managed by or who they belong to. Could be uh, all th one of those three. Yeah? Could you speak to the physical difference of the management of Well, first of all, I've never seen a domestic, domestic buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> um, the buffalo don't really need a whole lot of management. They, they, they kind of take care of themselves. They just need space. Uh, and, and adequate food and water. When it comes to uh, commercial production, uh, there's some there's some steps that those producers take that are kind of uh, questionable. One is uh, not maintaining a, a natural female to male ratio. 60-40 is, is roughly a natural ratio of, of females to males. In a commercial setting, you're going to have a 90-10 ratio. That's genetic manipulation because you are determining which male breeds with the females as opposed to them competing for it. Um, oftentimes they're confined uh, to limited limited space. That's unnatural. Uh, feeding them is unnatural. They're seasonally polyesterous, which means if you feed them, it can cause them to go back into estrus and then you have late season calves. If you have a natural setting, all of those calves are born within a very small window, similar to pronghorn, caribou, wildebeest. It's a survival mechanism to increase the survivability of your offspring. So, you know, when it comes to a natural setting, all they need is thousands of acres and then let them be. They don't need help calving. They don't need help, you know, finding food and water. As long as they have everything that they, they need, they're going to be, do, they're going to do just fine and they're going to have about a 20% reproductive rate. And so uh, we've lost one calf in six years. There's been over 30 calves born on the, on the, for the Shoshone tribe. And so they're very successful. They don't need a whole lot of help and management. We don't need to round them up, ear tag them, vaccinate them, do all that stuff that we do with cows, because we don't do that with any other wildlife. But we've got to get out of that paradigm of thinking that we need to and, and think of treating them like we do the other four-leggeds that live here around us. Um, if buffalo are sharing range with cattle, like you gave an example of 20,000 cattle and 800 buffalo, and, and you explained that buffalo only eat the upper part of the grass, how do they deal with the, the cattle that have pretty well decimated the area, I would think? Well, I think that uh, they have kept the buffalo and cattle separate there. Uh, 
there's been there's a place in Canada that restored buffalo that was overgrazed with cows for decades, and then they, they they rested it for a year, and then they put buffalo on it. And what they saw and witnessed was uh, a complete change in the in, in environment there. The, the grasses that came back uh, that were still in the seed bank that were were not growing when there were cows there. So uh, there's another study out of Kansas that just showed that plant biodiversity increased by 40 or 50 percent with a, with cattle presence as opposed to cattle buffalo presence as opposed to cattle uh, you know the uh, there was somewhere else I was going to go with that but I kind of lost it <laughs> well, I was just thinking you've given us a whole hour so far ah. and, and so I don't know how you're feeling maybe a few more yeah I'll take a few, a few more okay. questions yeah okay, and then we'll yeah lots of interest how about you sir your mention of uh, taking uh, 17 buffalo hides to make a teepee cover made me wonder how long um, a teepee cover lasts if it's well maintained using traditional methods. And then that made me wonder if the buffalo were almost wiped out decades ago, and that was that means generations ago. How did that traditional knowledge of working with and maintaining teepee covers with buffalo hides get past the Good question. It wasn't. We have to relearn it. There, 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 uh, I think there are some families that are out there, probably at Wind River, probably at Cheyenne and Crow and Blackfeet and other tribes that have probably held on to some of those artifacts, but they're very, very rare. And, uh, you know, I don't know of anybody personally at Wind River that would have, uh, uh, an old lodge, you know, the, we had to go to the Smithsonian to see the one that they had and recreate it. So I think as we are building our reconnection with Buffalo, those are questions that we're going to have to learn and answer ourselves over time. Yes, ma'am. In response to his question, one of the beauties of having a few blah, 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 they speak for themselves. And you have people knowledgeable in they can take those same skills and look at old TPs, the leather TPs. That's certainly correct. There's a gentleman in Hot Springs, South Dakota who brain tans buffalo hides. He sews them together and he's made over 200 brain tan buffalo hide teepees. He's a non-native guy who learned from the Lakota and he teaches classes there you can order one. I think they're about fifteen thousand dollars, but you can get one. And and you're right. There's a lot of artisans that are in our communities that are sewing moccasins, making traditional regalia. There's a lot of uh, people that you know participate in ceremonies and celebrations. So you know there is a a lot of people that still have the ability. It's creating the opportunity for them to bring those skills together so that we can we can build it place based. There's, there's uh, people in, in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, Lisa and Arlo Ironcloud, they are doing buffalo classes all the time and teaching how they take that animal apart with no saw, where you, where you cut it on the cartilage so that you don't need a saw, uh, how they make buffalo hoof soup, you know, how they preserve the meat without refrigeration, all of those old uh, things we can draw from and build together so that we can you know, do place-based knowledge like that. How about you, ma'am? First of all, you're the best speaker we've had at this point. Yes. <laughs>
happened when they were all crossing the road and all the cars were stopped, decided to show off to her, so he attacked our truck. And he attacked us. He gored our tire and flattened us right there. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I guess if there's any, I mean, really, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I think she had her hand up. Sure. We used to have a newspaper that published a lot of stuff about Yellowstone and the bison wandering out and all the offending slaughters and stuff. I don't know what's going on now, but could you talk a little about what that, what's going on there? Yeah, so I, I mentioned the 60% uh, of buffalo, when they go through and get tested, they're going to test positive brucellosis, they die. And so the quarantine program was uh, proposed by the Intertribal Buffalo Council and the National Wildlife Federation back in the 90s as a way to be able to certify those animals as disease-free and then get them out to tribes. And the Fort Peck tribes in northeast Montana have received over 300 Yellowstone bison uh, that we got animals from. Uh, we got five bulls that came from that batch, as have many other tribes received those Yellowstone genetics, like the three we sent to Alaska. So that uh, quarantine program really has the, we have the capability to beef that up so that we can maximize that 40%. But right now, at Stevens Creek and Corwin Springs, the two facilities that are the quarantine programs, they can only accept about 30 to 50 animals per cohort. And so there's animals uh, that are potentially being slaughtered indiscriminate of whether they have brucellosis or not. So that's, that, that's an atrocity and we need to do better. So establishing new quarantines, maybe on other reservations or working with other entities that may be private lands, where we can establish other quarantines to, so that we can get a, a larger number of animals out of the park. And that will ensure that those genetics are going out to our conservation populations or those tribes that want specific conservation genetics to improve their health. How can we make that happen? Uh, Greater Yellowstone Coalition is one organization that uh, could use a lot of help in continuing the advocacy for or Yellowstone. They actually hired a, a gentleman who's a Shoshone, one of my colleagues uh, at Wind River. So GYC has actually hired positions on the reservation to help uh, some of these larger efforts around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the quarantine included. Uh, the, you know, you can call your legislators and say that you want to see buffalo managed as, as wildlife species in Montana and then you want to uh, see these animals go to uh, places where they're, they're honored and respected for their genetics. Uh, Intertribal Buffalo Council, National Wildlife Federation, I think Defenders of Wildlife, World Wildlife Fund, we are all collaborating as conservation organizations to help make this more of a reality where we can get more animals out. Uh, so, you know, supporting those entities that are doing that and continuing to, to reach out and visit with folks that that you think could benefit from that. Yes, ma'am. Could you tell us a little bit about the annual buffalo hunt? So there's nine tribes that have treaty 
rights to hunt in Yellowstone. Uh, these are based off of the Stevenson treaties. Uh, Stevenson was the, the, the negotiator and he wrote language in those that uh, pertains to those tribes. It's just language like uh, usual and accustomed areas. Very, very vague language that the tribes are using to exercise that sovereignty to hunt in Yellowstone. So those Stevenson Treaty tribes uh, hunt there. It's controversial because the hunt has to be on federal lands within the park. I mean, fed, uh, just outside of the park. And the areas that the hunt can take place is too small. And it's got neighbors and there's lawsuits because of the, the people that are witnessing that. Uh, it's like uh, the Colville, Nez Perce, the Shoban, uh, Umatilla, um, Confederated Salish Kootenai, and a few other tribes have those treaty rights. Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone also have those treaty rights, but we haven't exercised them to hunt. In part of the work that we're doing conservation-wise, it's, it's to increase the tolerance zone for buffalo. We, I just got an email yesterday that says we got just over 6,000 buffalo in the park. And based on new uh, biological research by Chris Jeremiah, the, we, we actually think that the intense grazing uh, that buffalo provide actually increases plant productivity that the carrying capacity for Yellowstone is actually larger than it was, that it was, you know, a few years ago it was 3,000. We actually think that that carrying capacity could go to more like eight to 10,000. And if we increase the tolerance zone, areas outside of the park, like 411,000 acres on the north up by West Yellowstone, if those animals were able to find that and move it and utilize it, then that's more habitat for them to utilize and that supports the larger number of animals. That would also increase the ability for the hunt to take place outside of Beatty Gulch. Um, but getting nine tribes together on the same page and telling them that they can't hunt is a very difficult thing to do. And so that's part of the effort is how do we coordinate all of these entities that, that want to exercise treaty rights and should but in a way that is, is respectful to the buffalo, is respectful to the neighbors that live along Beatty Gulch and accommodates what a hunt should actually look like. And, and that, that is something that we're trying to work and build towards, but we're a long way from that. The, are the bison on the National Bison Range uh, Bruce is free, and are they cooperating with your uh, organization? Certainly so. The, the, the National Bison Range was recently transferred to the Confederated Salish Kootenai, and so that was a big win. That was a big win to get that those federal lands restored to the tribes as well as that buffalo program. In 2017, we received 10 animals from the National Bison Range, and in 2019, the Northern Arapaho received 10 from the National Bison Range. Those are brucellosis free, and they are genetically <coughs> pure, so they have those genetics that. That are, that are desirable for conservation. Yes, sir. I'm a supporter of the St. LeBray Indian School in Ashland, um, where they educate the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow, and for, at the, from the nearby reservations. Your map showed management areas for buffalo in that area, I believe. 
my question is, would you know or how could I find out if Buffalo is included in their school lunch program? Uh, because I've tried to contact the, the tribal councils and I've had very little success. They don't return calls. Maybe contact I hope uh, to visit with them all here in Montana. Melissa Spang at Northern Cheyenne. Uh, and maybe even talk to uh, Louis Talbot. Uh, he's at the, uh, the college there in uh, Lame Deer. Okay. Um, maybe you can give me that information afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I know that both the herds at Crow and Northern Cheyenne are not conservation herds, though. And so some of those maps, some of those dots on the map, uh, they may be buffalo, but they're not all conservation buffalo. And there is some cattle aggression and some heterozygosity in those two populations. What does that mean? Inbred. Oh. Not enough, in, not, not enough new incoming genetics. Uh, so, the, the uh, um, male-female ratio is wrong in the buffalo herd? No, the male-female ratio is right, but they haven't had a new influx of genetics, and so then there's some level of inter interbre interbreeding. So new, new, and, and cattle gene integration. So some animals that they accepted in the past would have, would have had cattle gene integration, and so then that's prevalent in the population. You mean buffalo um, intermate with cattle? Not on their own, but in the early 1900s, uh, in an effort to create a better cow, because cows freeze to death, because they don't have seven times the hair per square inch as a buffalo, they uh, were susceptible to climate. So as you know, tribes are forced on reservations and buffalo were eliminated from the land, that made way for these large beef operations. You hear a lot of proud fifth generation ranchers talking about, well that's, that's those guys. Came in after the buffalo and Indians were gone. So in an effort to create a better cow, they crossbred them with buffalo, creating cattalo or beefalo. So, so when I say 500,000 buffalo in the United States have cattle gene introgression, that's what that is. Cattle genetics. And there's a head of one of those in the, in the museum in Redbox. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Burnett was prominent. So that's why the conservation buffalo are so important because they don't have that cattle gene introgression. There's only, there's less than 25,000 of those. Majority of animals in, in the United States have cattle genetics. There's less than 25,000 that don't. Wow. Amazing. I think, I think that's it.